When I was about 12, everyone who lived in my house was in their rooms, kind of settling down for the night. And around 12 or so in the morning, maybe one o'clock, I decided to get on the computer. I put in some music and I started browsing the forum of a website called Gaia Online. As the night went on, I was browsing, I kept noticing shadowy figures from the doorway of our kitchen peering out, staring at me. And every time I looked over there, they would just disappear. There'd be no movement, no one in the kitchen, nothing. Uh, and after about 20 minutes of this, I uh, stopped seeing them, but I heard a scream in my ear and I had the music pretty loud. Uh, that sounded like a mixture of my mom and two of my sister's voices overlapping one another, but kind of one in the same. Scream my name, and it sounded like it was less than a foot away from me. I ripped off my headphones and started looking around because it scared the crap out of me. Uh, <laughs> and there was, there was no one there. But when I returned my attention to the computer, there was a thread that was created by no one. Like, it, there was no username, and it said, did that scare you? I clicked on the link, and it said, this page no longer exists. This happened when I was in my early to mid-twenties. I woke up one morning wanting to pee really bad. At the time, I lived in a one-floor small house, so from my bed, I could hear water running in the bathroom on the other side of the house. After a while lying there, I realized that the running water sound was too loud, so I got up and went into the bathroom. There was water everywhere, coming from inside the cabinet under the sink. I switched off the water valve and called for my grandmother. While she looked into things to see if she figured out what happened, I grabbed my toothbrush and decided to go brush my teeth in the laundry room sink of our then future house. At the time, it was under construction and in the same lot as the other house where we lived. On my way back, I saw movement in my periphery and looked over to the stairs, just in time to see a skinny but quick shadowy human shape dart out of sight right where the staircase curves, as though it had been watching me and it didn't want me to see it. It was quick, but even made a rustling sound as it moved. It really looked like a human-shaped shadow. Later, I was told there was a hole in the pipe under the sink like it had been poked in there. I always felt like the sneaky shadow person had something to do with it. A prankster spirit, maybe? Who knows? Later that week, I had an experience I couldn't help but connect with the shadow person. I had been watching TV in the living room and I had a glass of something in my hand that I decided to go wash in the kitchen before heading to bed. I got to the sink and as I was standing there, I got this thought in my head that I should look behind me. I turned around and in literally a split second, I see a figure walking past me. It was nearly a head shorter than me, and it was wearing a thick brown hooded cloak that made me think of a burlap sack. I didn't see a face because it was walking by while facing away, and it was so quick, but also so very real. I have never witnessed anything paranormal since then or before that. I really saw what I saw, but what it means, I don't know. 
There's a shadow figure that lives in my mom's house and everybody in the family has seen it a handful of times. It's not a threatening shadow figure. Um, it's just a bit alarming when you see him standing in a darker shadow or a darker um, corner of the house and you realize that he's darker than dark. Once he moves, you realize that he's been standing there watching you the entire time. One night, uh, my mom was sleeping in her bed and she woke up and she noticed that there was like a darkness looming over her. She figured it was my dad just standing there. So she says, what the hell are you doing? But then she felt my dad rustle and heard him snore and realized it wasn't my dad. So she looked back to my dad and then back to the figure and the figure slowly stood up over her she realized it was about seven feet tall she just lay there in terror watching it and it walked slowly backwards away from her and kind of dissipated into the closet i'm a truck driver professionally and i was at a truck stop in hesperia california uh i was too lazy to back into a spot so i pulled straight in and i was facing the opposite direction of the truck next to me uh, it was getting to be about sundown, so, you know, shadows are long, <laughs> uh, you know, between his trailer and my trailer. And the shadow of his trailer went down about half the length of, of mine. And I was sitting there with my window down when I got this weird feeling, uh, like a sensation that I was in danger. And for some reason, the mental image of someone coming up behind me and cutting my throat popped into my head. And I was like, I'm just being paranoid. But when I looked in the mirror, I saw the figure of a man, black. Not a black man, but a black figure in the mirror at the edge of the shadow with what looked like a knife in his hand. And the shadow shifted into the shadow of the trailer of the truck next to me. I freaked out, I rolled up my window, and I went to go lay down. And that entire night, my throat was in pain, and and when I finally fell asleep, I kept having dreams about this shadowy figure. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall, and Everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old- There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hey guys, we just wanted to drop this in at the beginning and let you know that we are going to be discussing- suicide on this episode uh we'd encourage anyone who feels that they need to talk to someone to call the national suicide prevention lifeline uh the number for that is 1-800-273-8255 uh there's also online chat which is similar to texting available that is more convenient for you uh just wanted to take care of y'all back to the show hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. 
Welcome to all of our lovely listeners. Oh, you're just the prettiest little peaches I ever did see. I am so happy you're back with us this week. I've been thinking about you all and, you know, I'm very happy that you are all in existence and I hope you are all safe and happy and warm and that you're just having the bestest summer ever and not watching the news. But really watch the news. It's important, but don't Feel the news, but feel the news, but it's not important, but it is important. You're going to give people a complex. (laughs) Just call your senator, okay? (laughs) But we're going to welcome all of you back. We're going to remind you that you can reach out to us in any which way you can, such as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at just a story pod. You can email us. You can even now mail us a letter. We have... A place to get mail. Yes, we finally signed up for one in our new location. So that address will be on our website and on social media if you want to reach out to us. And you know what? We'll probably write you back. We tend to do that. And sometimes we even draw cool pictures. It's like once we have your address, we send crap to you. But not asking you for more money. (laughs) It's your bed? What? We don't do that, Jacob. What? Not since the restraining order. I know. Ruins all the fun. Look, and there was an NDA and we're not to talk about it. Or was there an NDA? Wink. Yeah. Wink, wink. <laughs> we also want to remind you that you can check out our website at justastorypod.com, which will have access to all of our citations, other information about the episodes, and you can also check out links to our merch store. We have merchandise, that's right. We put our logo right on shirts and coffee mugs and sometimes diaries, various tote bags of various sizes, coin purses, shower curtains, maybe even a dog. Step dog? What? You can't sell our dog. He's 12 years old. He might like to Travel? see the world. <laughs> no, he likes to sleep and growl at things. He does. You can also check out our Patreon page, where it's just a great way to help support the show and you get access to fun extras. Uh, we also want to remind you that you can reach out to us through the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. We have an Urban Legend Hotline, and you can reach that hotline by dialing the number... 512-222-3375. And once you have dialed that number, you can tell us your favorite urban legend, scary story, terrible joke, thing your grandmother always said would happen to you if you didn't stop doing that. We've gotten one of those. Yeah. Or, one you know, day. just your hopes, dreams. Or fears. Or fears. And this week, our story does come through the Urban Legend Hotline. Several times. Uh, Yeah, I forget to mention that sometimes. This week, we'll be talking about shadow people. Because everyone else is. As you know, ours is going to be a little different. So I do actually want to start with a story out of California. California, California, here we go. Don't send the dog to California. (laughs) Do-do-do-do-do. Now let's say not we're not going to Orange County. Oh, sorry, no OC. Fine, but I was getting all angsty up in here. We can get a little angsty. All right, let's get some angsty. Let's say you were traveling in the Big Sur area. Okay, you cool. may be with Jack Kerouac. Yeah, hanging out. Definitely, his cabin. Snapping at the end of his poetry rants. Whatevs. Ginsburg's there. Definitely high. Really, everyone is. Everyone is. Everyone is. But you might be, you know, nearing the St. Lucia Mountains. Just in that area, you might be hiking. You may be driving. You may even be flying. How do you fly? A plane, Sam. Mm. And you may look up to the side 
and spot something around twilight, often wearing a long black cloak, wearing maybe a hat, maybe with a walking stick, standing silhouetted against the night sky, along the ridges and peaks of this mountain range. may just be out of the corner of your eye, and then it vanishes. And you may need clean hiking shorts, or biking shorts, or flying shorts. (laughs) I want flying shorts. I remember one day, my friend and I were coming back from Los Angeles. We passed the San Lucio Obispo Reservoir, and as we drove on the road, I saw something at a distance down at the end of the mountain. It was a really big human figure, but it wasn't. It had a black cape, kind of like the Grim Reaper, and it was leaning over holding onto a staff at a puddle of water. And so, that is what it seemed at a distance. It was daytime, too, so I could identify it wasn't a person, even in mid-light. He was very black and reminded me of a raven. I told my friend that was driving to look over the mountains and surprisingly, she was able to see a glimpse of it. I asked her what she saw without giving her my details and she said exactly what I saw. She only looked at it for about five seconds, but she was able to see it. She almost lost control of the car too when she looked away at it and I begged her to go back and see it, but she was very tired of driving already. These dark watchers are real. Alright, so we have named the thing. The thing is the Dark Watcher. Mm-hmm. And this guy and his fellow traveler, not in a communist way. I assume it's a guy. I mean, and we assume they're not communists. Yeah. They're driving along. They look up at the, the like, the mountain line, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right, like up at a cliff. Okay, and atop it, they see this uh, raven-esque figure standing there, and they do not say that is so raven. They say, oh crap, that thing looks a little sinister. The Dark Watcher. The Dark Watcher. It's real. Okay, so who has regaled us with this tale? Oh, someone on the internet. Someone on the internet. Okay. Someone on the internet. There are so, so many stories about the Dark Watchers. And interestingly, there are a lot of stories on, like, hiking websites. Oh, fun. Hiking blogs, you know, things like that, because that's a lot of times... Who sees them? Mm-hmm. And are they specifically tied to this geographical area? Yes. Okay. Yes. Not one particular spot. Okay. Like not like oh, if you go to that cliff or this rock formation, you'll see it. Just throughout this kind of Big Sur, San Lucia Mountain Range area. Okay, so I'm familiar with forums in that they exist, and I avoid them. Oh no, you don't. <laughs> I peruse them. I never comment. No, don't comment. Seriously, I've never commented, but. I'm also familiar with the fact and the phenomena of a forum legend. Like, you know, just something purely internet-based. You're creepypasta. You're creepypasta, if you will. Is this a creepypasta if you won't or will? It's not. Oh. It's not. Believe it or not, it's much older than the internet. So it was first written down, or at least mentioned, in the 1930s. So, John Steinbeck. I've heard of him. You know the guy? I've heard of him. He lived near Big Sur, and he wrote a short story called Flight in his book, The Long Valley, in 1938. This is about a teenage boy, Pepe, who kills a man during a moment of thoughtless drunkenness. Of course, he knows this is the end of the line, so his mother tells him to run. And this is the basis for Poncho and Lefty by Townsend's that. I don't know. I don't think so. Living on the road, my friend, is going to keep you free and clean. Now you wear your skin like iron. Well, so his mom gives him a different set of advice. She, he wasn't his mama's only boy, but her favorite one, it seems. No, she said, When thou comest to the high mountains, if thou seest any of the dark watching men, 
Go not near to them, nor try to speak to them, and forget not thy prayers. So she speaks in King James Version. It's John Steinbeck. Okay, fine. He just does things. He just does things, and she just did that. So she said, don't speak to the Raven-esque Watcher. The Dark Watchers. So as Pepe is making his escape through the mountains on horseback, through the fog, he has his first encounter. Pepe looked suspiciously back every minute or so, and his eyes sought the tops of the ridges ahead. Once, on a white barren spur, he saw a black figure for a moment, but he looked quickly away, for it was one of the Dark Watchers. No one knew who the Watchers were, nor where they lived, but it was better to ignore them and never to show interest in them. They did not bother one who stayed on the trail and minded his own business. Mind his own business he did, but as the posse drew near, he had another close call. Pepe looked up to the top of the next dry, withered ridge. He saw a dark form against the sky, a man's figure standing on the top of a rock, and he glanced away quickly, not to appear curious. When a moment later, he looked up again, the figure was gone. So, you know what this reminds me of? What's that? When we went to Enchanted Rock. Oh, are you going to tell our story? Do you think I should? Sure, why not? So, we took a day hike around Thanksgiving break to go out to Enchanted Rock, which is a, explain Enchanted it's Rock. It's one of the only granite domes, the other big one being Stone Mountain in Georgia. Um, it is a pink granite dome in the hill country of Texas. It's beautiful, beautiful area. And it's called Enchanted Rock because as the story goes. There are so many. The Apache used to use it for sacred rituals. And, and then the Comanche did. And then the Apache did. It was right. like... And also, there were sites of like small skirmishes there and stuff like that. Well, the place has got a very weird feel to it. Like oh, it has a very uh, new agey following, too. Yeah. It's supposedly the granite, you know, this giant granite dome. And ley lines. And ley lines meet and there. And things. So, but it really does. Like when you get out and go toward the dome, it has a weird feel. We'd broken off the path and we were sort of exploring separately. And I started feeling like I should go over to the spot. And it was very specific. It was like, I should go over here and look on the ground because I'm going to find something. Which is a weird thought to have. It's not one that occurs to me usually. But I did kind of go over to this grassy area, which there aren't very many of. And I looked down and I found... a. A thumb knife is what it's called. It's a thing that Native Americans would use to skin animals in that area. And I mean, I just looked down and it was on top of the grass, which is, again, very odd. Very weird. That was very weird. But that, I was like, okay, people find arrowheads, all that kind of stuff here. Because it was an area where Native American settlements were. So that's not too crazy. But I kept feeling like... I was not by myself like the entire time I was there. It was a very continuous conversation between this, like, I guess I'm going to just go ahead and call it a spirit and myself throughout the day. It was, and it was a very specific person and it was like an old man, an old Native American man. And I kept like feeling like I should go this way or I should go that way. And just kind of like, like I had a tour guide, like I had a very personalized tour on this dome. So we get to the top, which is not really a summit. It's it a bump. Yeah. It's a bump. It's, it's high enough. It's and beautiful. we stay and we watch the sunset, and then we stay and we look at the stars, and then we wander over to another little spot and we watch the stars until we have thoroughly disoriented ourselves because- I have no clue where we are. We went up when it was daytime, and now it is nighttime, 
And, and we've never been there. And we've never been there. We've lost our landmarks. And it's late. And it's getting cold. And one of the reasons we stayed to see the stars is it's one of the only certified dark zones in the country where you can see, like, Milky Way and stuff like that. You can see all the stars, but you can see nothing else. <laughs> because there was no moon that night. So we saw all the stars. Now, it's time to go down the mountain, or the, the dome, and we are... Like, not going to find it. And there are only two, like, trails up it. You know, like, you kind of have to, you can't just walk. And I say, Jacob, you're just going to have to trust me because we keep looking for signs. It's like, we've been looking for, like, over 30 minutes and cannot find our way out. I'm like, I'm just going to let, dude, tell me how to get out of here. I mean, being a skeptical one's like, okay, fine, whatever. And there was one spot we were walking by, and I told Jacob, it's like, we might see some shit, but don't look at it. Out of the corner of our eye. We're not supposed to look at it. Go fast. And we're not, we're not high, by the way. This is just by me, naturally. <laughs> so we go down the mountain, like beeline it. No trail, no markers, no nothing. Yeah, and I walk us out into the freaking parking lot where our car is. And rescue two others. <laughs> yes. lost. And we had been circling and circling and finding nothing until I was just like, I'm going to listen to the dude. He's going to tell me where to go. Don't look at the stuff. And we started having like a weird antsy feeling. Like once we got all the way at we the were bottom. done. We just needed to walk to our car. And we go through the parking lot. And as we do, the alarms on like every car we walk by go off. And the lights start blinking and they all come on and we like run to the car and get in the car and drive away. And there's a deer blocking the driveway, like this big old buck yes. just standing there staring at us. And he finally just kind of like ambles off. Yeah, it and we go one home. of the experiences that me, the skeptical one, still cannot explain. The car alarms are what really just make it. And not so me, odd. like just going down the side of a hill. No, because that could have like, been good luck. I don't I'm have saying, good luck. I'm saying it could have been. <laughs> like, if you're being super skeptical, right. but like nothing explains like five or six car alarms all going off right as we walk by them. No, nothing does. And so, me being the researcher that I am, when I got home, I looked up like enchanted rock legends and lore to kind of like see if I had actually come into contact with anything that is supposedly there. And one thing I thought was interesting is there are the warriors. That are mentioned. Uh And they are. They're like a a band of like shadow warriors that come out and are very aggressive at night. And if we were not supposed to look at anything, I wonder if it's those warriors that supposedly guard the domes. You know, like. Who knows? Who knows? But that's what it makes me think of. Well, so the idea of these kind of shadowy figures, you know, on the tops of mountains or in these wilderness areas are not that rare to find right you know so with the watchers you know one might want to say oh well like steinbeck invented it which is not the case because he wanted a contemporary poet that also lived in the big sur area also wrote a poem mentioning the watchers. mentioning the watchers. interesting and it predates steinbeck's it's, story yeah it was the year before okay it was but it was like a few months before to where it's very doubtful that they were able to read each other's work. Uh-huh. They're like within less than a year apart. And with publishing, and I really think it's very unlikely unless they proofread each other's stuff. But a lot of people from the area will say that this is an old Native American tradition, specifically from the Kumash Native American tribe. Okay. And they lived in that region and also on some of the Channel Islands. 
And of course, no one really was able to collect a lot, any of their stories or anything like that at the time because they were missioned. They were put into the missions. Mm. So a lot of them moved on to the missions way back in the day. A lot like what happened in Texas with some of the tribes. The ones that would go, yeah. not the Comanche right, or the Apache. Exactly. So this is like in the, but this is like 1700s. So there's mm-hmm. no anthropologist running around. A lot of times we have stories from back then. It's like Jesuit priests and mm-hmm. things like that, that that will write it down. There's nothing from then about from the Kumash. So Shuash did have oral narratives collected by the American linguist and ethnologist John Peabody Harrington between 1912 and 1928. He has a fabulous name. He does. So all of this data has been sitting in the archives, the Smithsonian. Okay. And Thomas Blackburn went in the 70s, thoroughly researched these and put it into a book form called December's Child. Now, if you read through this book, there are a lot of great stories. There's stories of otherworldly spirits. There are phantasms of the living. There are shadows that approach women and impregnate them. Fun. Sound a little, little Zeusy there. Little Zeusy. <laughs> little Zeusy. And of course, which incidentally yeah. is like what an entire generation of Greeks were called. Zeusies. Little Zeusies. Little Zeusies. Because he was their daddy. Aww. But within. This collection, there are no stories anywhere similar to the Dark Watchers. Okay. So, is it fake lore? That's so hard to say. It's impossible to say. It really is. It's hard to say if this was something that was just kind of, you know, created at the time. If people have given it that old Native American tale label. Right. To make it more authentic. Because... You know, these oral traditions have been recorded once by one person a little before that time period that Steinbeck's book was written, but who's to say if it was never recorded? And who's to say that in that particular area, it didn't come to be a story after they were moved out of their native lands, and it wasn't really a traditional story, so it didn't get collected? You know, like, there are so many things that could have happened. The written record, I would think, is pretty Thin. Like, we've got one authoritative source. It's not even a back-in-the-day source. Right, it's not super old. I think we can safely say it, it, it's very unlikely that it was invented whole cloth by, like, Steinbeck. So, Thomas Steinbeck, John Steinbeck's son... Oh, they are related. I was curious. ...wrote a book with an artist, Benjamin Brody, in 2013 called In Search of the Dark Watchers. And the internet loved it. Nah. <laughs> It's kind of like an art book, because he's a landscape artist, and so he would trek out into Big Sur and make sketches and, you know, come home and finish the paintings. Steinbeck is an artist? or Brody. Brody, okay. So Thomas Steinbeck kind of talks about his father's connection with this. As an adult, John Steinbeck did read Carl Jung and understood these archetypes. We've talked about the archetypes before. They're like these specific, almost genres of character, Um, things that appear often in fictional writing or in you know very narrative interpretations of histories etc right and of course we've talked about the shadow on the doppelganger episode yes which would be an excellent companion piece for this episode yes but according to thomas steinbeck the idea was first planted in john's imagination by his mother olive now olive would say that she not only saw the dark watchers but interacted with them his grandmother was a Fiercely honest, and the type who, if she couldn't see it, read it, hear it, touch, or taste it, it didn't exist. And yet, Olive was adamant that during her day as a young teacher riding through the remote woods of Big Sur, 
to reach her students, she would see the Watchers. And she even would trade fruits, nuts, and flowers with them. Interesting. She would leave gifts in the shaded alcove near Mule Deer Canyon on her travels south. And when she came back, she would find the Watchers had reciprocated her kindness. Now, the artist Benjamin Brady said the old timers of Big Sur swear by it. They called them the Los Vigilantes Oscuros. The Obscure Vigilantes? Yeah, close, at least. (laughs) Sounds too much like it if it's not. So, fun fact, that phrase is nowhere published before this book comes out. Really? If it was not wholly invented for the book, it was 100% oral tradition. It's a pretty remote area. I don't have that big of a problem believing that it was. It's really not that hard to think that it could be. Or like one dude's grandpa came up with it and they thought it was a legend that everyone knew. But we've already given our own account of kind of interactions with similar beings. And this is something that is seen all around the world. So Thomas Steinbeck mentioned that his father was interested in archetypes and Carl Jung. And Carl Jung... Had his own experience with a mysterious dark figure in the mountains. Kind of. Kind of. He wrote in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, I had a dream which both frightened and encouraged me. It was night in some unknown place, and I was making slow and painful headway against a mighty wind. Dense fog was flying along everywhere. I had my hands cupped around a tiny light which threatened to go out at any moment. Suddenly, I had the feeling that something was coming up behind me. I looked back and saw a gigantic black figure following me. When I awoke, I realized at once that the figure was a specter of the Brocken. Is that a thing? Yes. So, one, you're never supposed to tell people your dreams because they're never as impressive as you think they are. Like, they always end up with these long, rambly stories. Like, for instance, when I took a nap today, I dreamed that I was holding our dog Fritz and he transformed into a large duck. That was a great quick story. There could be more, but I won't. But Carl Jung has put together something here that is more like a poem than a dream, if he dreamt it at all. It's beautiful. Secondly, also creepy. It is creepy. So, the Brocken Spectre. So, Brocken is a peak in the Hartz Mountains in Germany. Oh, I just thought it meant broken. No. Oh. So, legends state that climbers will see this dark, shadowy human shape in the foggy mist. Some have even fallen into the valley below, killed by the specter. It's a fiercely interactive ghost or specter. Well, I mean, they, they get frightened by it and they oh, fall off. Oh, I see. So the mountain itself has actually been associated with witches and demons and all that fun stuff. Even with Gotha describing a Wallspringer night party up on the peaks of Brocken within Faust. Ain't no party like a Mephistopheles party because a Mephistopheles party don't stop. Now, there are other mysterious mountain figures that have been seen around the world, such as the Big Grey Man of Ben Macdu. So, this is in Scotland. So, in the 1920s, during a dinner speech at an annual gathering of the Cairngorm Club in Aberdeen, its honorary president, the highly respected Professor John Norman Colley, told of a frightening experience that he had had 35 years ago. So he was climbing alone in the snow and mist when he heard crunching sounds, as if he was being followed by something large and ominous. Oh, that is spooky. So he just turned and fled. He didn't even see anything. But when he told this story, other people came forward with their own experiences. Another climber, A.M. Kellis, who was actually a veteran of the Himalayan ascent, like back then. Wow. 
later told Professor Kali of the similar terrifying experience he had. He and his brother were on the mountain close to the summit when they saw a giant figure approaching them from the direction of the cairn. This is big dude. Like, this is bigger than human size. Big, shadowy figure. Just kind of creeping up on hikers. Now, some people have gotten a better look at it and even say he wears a top hat. Fancy. <laughs> FYI. So, he's called the Big Gray Man, and he's kind of associated with the Far Lyoth. But he's the Far Lyoth more. And so, the Far Lyoth is the Gray Man, who's this older tradition of a feared fairy. He's not able to speak, but he had the ability to create fog, also known as the Gray Man's breath. Huh. He's malicious and murderous, and likes to use fogs to cause ships to crash into the shore, or to obscure a path or cause travelers to fall off cliffs. I love how much sociopathic mischief is part of old lore. Yeah, well, it explains why someone would go missing, why someone's dead, why they went hiking and they just fell off a cliff. <laughs> True. So, and of course, similar phenomenons have been seen in Germany's Black Forest as well. People terrify, claiming to witness misty gray men following them and hearing the echoing of footsteps. Mm. So let's go back to that young story and let's finish it. There's one more line. When I awoke, I realized at once that the figure was a specter of the Brocken, my own shadow on the swirling mist, brought into being by the little light that I was carrying. All the snaps. Okay, so we could sit here and ponder the philosophical ramifications of what Young has just told us, and we might. It, it, it does have definitely a philosophical component to it. Like, it is at the like being afraid of your own shadow kind of idea. The light you carry, that one little thing keeping you out of the darkness is actually creating the thing you're afraid of. Right. Insane. But on a surface level, he was describing the actual phenomenon called the Brock Inspector. Wait, the actual phenomenon? Now you believe yes. in ghosts 100%? No, no, no. Okay. Physics. Ah, physics. There we go. That sounds more like yeah. Sorry. So, like, as a mountaineer might reach a high ridge, they might see this ghostly figure towering out from the mist, its head sheathed in shimmering rings. So the Brock Inspector is an effect produced when a person stands above the upper surface of a cloud on a mountain or high ground when the sun behind them. So when they view their shadow, the light's reflected back in such a way that they also see this circular glory, like a rainbow, appear around the point directly opposite the sun, so often the head. That's awesome. That's a really cool phenomenon. It really is, and it's beautiful if you see different pictures of it. So it's interesting that a lot of these watchers are seen in the headlights of cars, because headlights can create a similar phenomenon. 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 So one of the interesting things to me, and I wanted to start the shadow people off with this story in particular, besides it being just a kind of cool story. It is a cool story, bro. That a lot of people haven't heard of, is that shadow people are not how they're sometimes portrayed as only being something you see in your bed at night. Right, they can be out hanging out in the woods. Yeah, because a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, it's just a hypnagogic hallucination, hypnopompic hallucination, which... Are it they, is, sure. They, maybe. But that's what, you know, we used to explain things like the old hag, mm -hmm. which you can see our sleep paralysis episode. From back in the day. For that. But that does not at all explain this because people see them all the time. Right. And they take all kinds of different forms and, 
and all sorts of fun stories. So the idea of shadow people is often credited to coming into kind of the public consciousness through Art Bell's AM radio program, Coast Coast to Coast, Coast. which is a fun trip down the trippy rabbit hole. It is quite the trippy rabbit hole. Now, of course, Art Bell's now deceased. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Art Bell, you brought the world so much internet fodder. And so much for us to talk about. (laughs) We love you, Art Bell. Anyway. And so in 2001, Art Bell had a caller who brought up shadow people. And so after this was talked about on the show, 4,500 people wrote in to tell them about their stories. That makes sense. And then on April 12th, they pretty much dedicated a whole show to it and brought on Native American Elder Thunderstrikes. Awesome name! Right? It's great. He's from Texas. To kind of talk about his beliefs and how they kind of are associated with Shadow people, but also reading a bunch of shadow people stories. Very cool. So, since Thunder Strikes made his grand debut on Coast to Coast, we have, as a people, attempted to quantify, classify, and assign like a taxonomy almost to shadow people. It's human nature. Human nature. At its best, crowdsourced on the internet. So, basic idea of a shadow person is it's usually a shadow or a dark figure that is usually person-shaped. People will often write that it's male in appearance. I think that's a weird one, but no one asked me. They are aware of people, and they might attempt to interact. They're usually, like, tall, six to seven feet tall, might wear a hat, might accessorize with a fancy cloak, yeah. fancy coat, etc. They are not just a shadow on a wall, not Peter Pan shadow detached from him, but more like they seem to actually have substance, like they take up space. That's very interesting. Another thing that I noticed in like everything you read about shadow people is they don't tip like I've I've not come across a story where one talked. Yeah, but they may interact. Right, they might Maybe even like alien talk to you, like alien telepathic, talk. telepathic uh, or uh. whatever. But I've never heard of one like speaking out loud. And, I'm sure they exist there. Oh yeah, and also you'll hear the words like darker than dark, blacker than black. Like there's something like, like it's an void. absence of space almost. So there are different types of shadow people, as I mentioned, and apparently there are as many types of shadow people as you want to exist. There are lurking. Shadow people. And these stand indoors or hang out in the corner. They're often seen inside of homes, usually in bedrooms. They might follow people. And a lot of times, as soon as you see them, they run away or poof away. They might go through walls, for example. Now, these are generally human-shaped. And then sometimes you can see a person, a shadow person, that looks like a black version of a ghost costume you see made for... E.T. So like blob-like? Like a, like the descriptions are like, like a person with a black sheet over them. Okay. So like old school. Ghost. Ghost. <laughs> but, but black. Costume. For sure. They usually give people like a sense of dread. Feeling that something bad is coming. It's an ominous feeling. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be more attached to people than places. And even when people move, sometimes the shadow people go with them. The lurkers. The yes, lurkers. Yeah. So not so less like a ghost. A ghosty. Well, less like a haunting. 
Yeah. Because people can have ghosts attached to them, for oh, sure. Oh, sure. Whatever. Okay, fine. <laughs> so there was a note from this blogger, which I thought was very thoughtful, before we continue any further. And I guess that he, they second-guessed themselves because they didn't know if they downplayed it too much. Here, they said, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that some shadow people fitting classic description are, in fact, malevolent. This is why I think all shadow entities should be treated with a high level of caution. Even if a shadow person is not initially hostile, it may be just a ploy. Considering that we are dealing with entities that may have much different perception of time than we do, they are very capable of waiting for humans to break down or have a weak moment, giving them an opportunity to act on us. That is very frightening. Crafty little oh. buggers, are they not? I would also agree that if you see one, you should probably not see if it wants to go get ice cream or something. Maybe if you offered it some ice cream, it would be happy and you could be best friends. That's a good point. Me and my shadow, that's a thing. <laughs> so there is a second type of shadow person. The visitors are the transient shadow people. Now, they are seen as they're going about their business. Oh, can I just say we've had so much fun this week watching YouTube videos of shadow people? <laughs> and going, oh, that's fake. No, it's not. Oh, shit, what's that? Yeah. Oh, my God, how would you do that? So then there are shadow figures that appear as omens uh, or warnings. They're never, like, there to be, like, an omen that you're going to win the lottery. They're there, like, shit about to get real. So bad omen. Bad ombres, these shadow omens. And they're usually, like, specifically tied to an upcoming event now there are also haunting shadow people and these are the ones that are like tied to a place so is that just a ghost it's a ghost in a gimp suit think of it that way and these they say are like more likely to attack another important fixture in the shadow people typology is the hat man this is the big baddie So witnesses typically describe him as a faceless dark man in an overcoat with a wide brim hat who watches from doorways. He induces feelings of apprehension and this feeling that the person who's just seen him has not seen him for the last time. So you know he's coming back. Mm -hmm. Mm. So the hat man really is a huge fixture in the shadow people world. (laughs) People that talk about the shadow people. So he is also brought up a lot on Coast to Coast AM. And one of the people that is frequently brought on to Coast to Coast AM and other shows in that vein is Heidi Hollis. So she's a, quote, researcher and has written numerous books on shadow people and the hat man. She takes credit for bringing both of them up. Oh, she... She introduced the world to them. Yes, even though there was already shadow people being talked about. By 4,500 people, yes, at least. Plus all of the people from centuries and centuries past. Also, the Watchers had hats. <laughs> but she describes the hat man as more physical, more evil. Maybe she even says it's actually the devil. Oh, dear me. Hi, has, Heidi. Yeah, more of a solid form, solid black eyes. And she doesn't feel they're the same as the shadow people. She even says that the hat man will whisper into children's ears that they should kill themselves. And if they don't, he will do it for them. So I hate to, I hate to break this to her, but of course there are shadow men with hats and the watchers and things like that. But not to say that everything is based on the Twilight Zone. There's a 1985 episode of the Twilight Zone. Yes. Do you know they even had the Twilight Zone in the 80s? I don't think they should have. It 
it isn't very good. Is it like, are you afraid of the dark? It reminds me of it. Yeah. Yeah, like it, it's not really much scarier either. <laughs> but same good music, though. Well, that's something. Lots of synth. But there is an episode called The Shadow Man. Oh. It's directed by Joe Dante. Who is Joe Dante? He would go on to direct Gremlins. Okay. And such yes. for The Burbs, which is a great movie. Which every time you bring it up, you're like, you know that movie. Don't you like that movie? And I'm like, I've never seen it. And every so time you react with shock and surprise. So in the episode, this shadow man appears to a kid wearing a big hat from under his bed. But the guy in the episode has the hat. The shadow man, yes. The shadow man has a hat. So he appears to this nerdy kid and immediately gives him the rules says, I'm the shadow man, and cool. I will never harm the person under whose bed I live. Don't think that's grammatically correct, but continue. And then he floats out the window. Cool. So he goes exacting revenge upon all the kids, bullies, and things like that. One of the girls even describes him as really tall and skinny, dressed in all black. She couldn't see his face. It was almost as if he wasn't real. Ooh. Now, twist ending. Nerdy boy. Goes to confront his bully us? at night. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's been out for longer than I've been alive. And as the bully comes to confront him at night, a shadow man appears behind the nerdy kid. And the nerdy kid's like, sick him. Yeah. Ha! And then the bully runs. The shadow man grabs the nerdy kid by the throat <gasps> and lifts him up. But but this is against the rules. That's what he says. Ah, of course he does. He he's says, a rule follower, that one. And he gives him the rules and says, but I am a shadow person. That lives under someone else's bed. <gasps> and there it sits and marinates in the subconscious for a couple years and then appears with a vengeance. I mean, like I said, there are stories about shadowy hat men for centuries, so really no. But it has been brought up before. So there are other shadow people in the pantheon there are the ones that will attack you while you're sleeping yeah which are more old haggy Mm -hmm. then there are the red-eyed shadow people which are definitely demonic and we should not ask them to go get ice cream that's where you draw the line and then there are the hooded shadow people Ooh, creepy which are also fond of lurking seldom get physical these are very malicious and it's said that people who experience them generally feel just this overwhelming sense of hatred. Huh. Hatred. What a yes. weird, specific feeling. Then there are misty shadow people who are not regular human shape, but more just like amorphous. Some people contend that they are just playful and curious. And some people say that these are like scouts for the bigger, more concrete shadow people and the hat man's Ooh. leading all of them. Right. There's like not only a typology, there is a hierarchy. <laughs> of course there is. Yeah. And then there are the peeking shadow people who will just peek out from behind things. Those videos on YouTube are super creepy. Yes, they are. So what are they is the question we Aliens. must contend with. Some people, some people say they are. Interdimensional beings. That, yes, we hear that one too. They could also be ghost demons nature spirits they could be like manifestations of your own psychological problem like a physical manifestation like a tulpa like a tulpa but more like 
Not something you've created, like almost like a PK. What's a PK? Like a poltergeist or... Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I'm talking about the idea of a tulpa, not how we've explained what a real one is. Oh, okay. But what I thought would be fun... Yes. ...is if I asked the internet what shadow people Internet? Were. Oh, no. So I went to the front page of the internet. Reddit. Reddit. And I explored the topic of shadow people on various and sundry boards. So this one is on the subreddit Ghost. And the question is, boldly stated, what exactly are shadow people? Now, user Rick Eli writes, I've seen a few in my life, and I've always been told they are harmless. But apparently, the neighborhood I just moved into has them, according to some of the people who live here. So, Skullzans replies, shadow people are not easily one thing. It depends on which kind you refer to. The non-ghost, the dark entities, or other mimics. You likely mean the non-ghost, but mimics do exist. Shadow people are a race. While not much is known, they have appeared everywhere lately and tend to follow people when something interesting will happen soon. Interesting? Like bad? May you live in interesting times, kind of interesting. If you see about 20 around a person, they usually are going to die. Or something big will happen to them. This is all I really know of them. I've only seen five of them in my life, always watching. But every time I see them, they dodge out of sight. Except when one just stared back and unnerved me a bit. So Metallic 444 said, I had a prolonged experience with a shadow person in the weeks before I almost died in an accident. Prior to actually seeing the shadow person, I had a couple weeks of feeling uneasy in the room it eventually showed up in. So Skullzans says to this, this is the first at the top. It's likely a shadow person who's a demon. Demons can be shadowy in appearance, usually to be edgy enough to be scary. Just a demon. NBD. No big deal. Ricotta Puffs, love the name, says Amy Allen doesn't tell the whole story. This is Amy Allen from Dead Files, which is a show on the Travel Channel that is probably my biggest guilty pleasure and the thing I watch when I'm by myself. She had a very negative experience as a child. There are shadow people who are human spirits who do not wish to appear or don't have the energy to appear. An example, my friend's brother chose to walk around his brother's house as a shadow in jeans and a hoodie. He didn't want to frighten anyone or to manifest as an identifiable spirit, but he was seen on numerous occasions by the child in the home. There's I assume here that the brother is dead. I, I think so. Okay. I don't know. I think so. There are shadow entities that used to be human, but which have evolved over long periods of time to be energy feeders. They no longer have the memories of their human lives. They are in a kind of hell. No personalities, no function, other than to hang around and to try to get energy to continue hanging around. There are shadow people who used to be human and who choose to appear as shadows rather than in another form. They aren't concerned about being seen and go about their own activities. Some of those are sentient and hide when seen or interact even. There are also shadow people created by our brains to initiate a fight-or-flight response. Some of this occurs in certain emotional illnesses. There are shadow people who are non-human entities who like to hang around and cause illness and negative feelings. These are sometimes referred to as mimics because they were never people. 
Ricotta Puffs knows a lot. They do. On this board, they also bring up that they can be demons or malicious entities or time travelers. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, I forgot one. I like the time traveler idea because that's like how you don't disrupt the space-time continuum, oh, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. So this is from No Sleep. We were going to get there eventually. And the heading that this is found under is, I just found out what shadow people are and I've been able to see them. Since I was seven. User Royal Peanuts describes reading a story about a shadow person attacking on no sleep, you know, when they couldn't sleep. Well, you were just asking for it, weren't you? (laughs) And they then recalled a lifetime of experiences with shadow people. Uh, An excerpt from the original post. I literally have no idea what to do. I have yet to see these shadows do anything hostile. But after hearing all those stories, I really don't want to meet a hostile one. Unless they are all hostile and I'm just oblivious, I'm honestly dreading the next time I see one since I now know what they are. I'm scared, truly scared. What do I do to get rid of this ability? Will I be okay? Can anyone help? Please, I don't want this anymore. I'm scared. I just want to be normal. After thinking more and more about this, I'm just becoming more and more frightened. I need help, please. So... They've been hanging out with shadow people like their whole life and thought that everything was hunky-dory, nothing bad's ever happened. But now they read that they're these like malicious tricksters and suddenly they're waiting for the other shoe to drop, I guess. And so they want more information so that they can anticipate the next thing that's coming. Yeah, so I have seen patients, you know, little kids, where when they start to have visual hallucinations are often perceived as shadows. And a lot of times, you know, if they're older, it could be associated with an onset of like schizophrenia or things like that, or any kind of schizoid disorder. But once I saw this little girl and she was like five and I think she had like, from what I could tell is she had kind of a history of PTSD, you know, things that would lead to that. And she always saw a little black shadow girl holding an umbrella. Oh my God. That is the creepiest detail ever. I don't know why that strikes like I that strikes fear into my soul for whatever reason. The umbrella. I know it's just like the detail makes it just so much creepier. <sighs> Speaking of children seeing shadows. Oh my god. Our own son, when he was younger, used to be afraid of day shadow. That is what he called this thing. And I think we might have talked about him before. I on the can't show. remember if I told the story here or like when I was doing the comic podcast with the guys back in the day, but but briefly, briefly, he was always afraid of this, and it was nothing we ever saw, and it was really just kind of a malgus thing. But it was getting to the point where here we had to do something because he was like, I heard him in his room like arguing with it. Yeah, and so we had we invented a ceremony. <laughs> Creepy hoodoo mama was like... To cleanse the room. I gotcha. And gave him a token, a chess piece, that he could keep in his room that would keep Day Shadow away. And then we never said the name ever again. And it worked. So who knows? Who knows? So the rapture cometh weighs in on that original no sleep thread and says like, ah, I wouldn't worry about him unless they're taller than five feet. I mean, you could take him. It sounds like an exterminator who's like, ah, it's just a little possum in your attic. I don't know. (laughs) It's like still a possum in my attic. So then fucking username X weighs in. I assume fucking username no X was already taken. (laughs) Um, I think A through A through W was probably taken too. 
So they wrote, I have seen these shadow people since I was a child, and I've never perceived them as hostile or evil. But I heard lots of stories about them being that way. I think they can tell if you're a good person or not. And that's how they judge whether or not to start messing with you. So since they've never done anything to you in the past, they've made the decision that you're a good person and you'll be fine. I love this one. Psych student 101 said, I agree with the person who said not to be afraid. Because by showing them kindness, you've made friends. Oh, See? Friends. Me and my shadow. Ice cream. Ice cream. And being afraid of them will make them feed on negativity and hurt you. Think of them like humans in that sense. Being kind to people makes them more likely to be kind to you in return. Whereas lashing out in fear makes people hurt and therefore defensive and angry. Just be yourself. Tell your shadow friend you're experiencing some rough emotions, but that you want to trust them. That you do trust them. Which is great advice if they're going to eat your face while you sleep. (laughs) So a user wrote, I had a shadow person protecting me from night terrors as a teenager. I don't know if it existed only as an archetype. I created my own mind or if it was some entity that had a purpose. And then Jonid wrote, the person who said that they're a doctor and that you're having a psychotic episode is an idiot. I agree. <laughs> yes. All of these people are having psychotic episodes. You know, I already like just threw out the, old hag thing because it's so stupid because people see him everywhere although it may explain some things but it's not the explanation i also see of course psychotic episodes that's ridiculous not all these people are having psychotic episodes if the if this is a psychotic episode we're all having it i guess is the <laughs> the way to look at it sometimes i may feel the whole world is having a psychotic episode yeah me too and another one i'll see thrown out there is that like meth causes this what? And like meth can cause you to see things and cause all kind of problems. Children and... take meth? Exactly. It's like, yes, meth explains all of these things. Like, <laughs> My professional medical opinion is you're an idiot. <laughs> There's also like an entire thread dedicated to shadow people at hospitals, Ooh, which is creepy. really interesting. I've never seen one. We saw the one shadow person at charity. Oh, you didn't see it. I told you about it. When did you see it? So at Big Charity, the old hospital in New Orleans. Is it was abandoned down. after Katrina yeah. and is one of the creepiest places. So when I was interviewing at Tulane, I had my hotel room had a window looking out at Charity. And there were like lights on and stuff. And, you know, you'd see things walk by the light. It was probably just homeless people. But it was still really creepy. <laughs> mm. On another thread on the subreddit Paranormal... Ooh, I need to go play on that. That sounds like fun. There was a discussion started by Rhaegar000, and they're trying to basically collect experiences. It's kind of like an ethnographic uh, survey of shadow person lore. I suspect they're researching for school. Or bored. (laughs) One of the two. And user Violetine writes, When I was little, at around six, I saw a shadowy version of my mother. Other mother? Did she have buttons for eyes? Basically, that's where she goes with it. So just hang on. It was early in the morning and everyone was sleeping. At first, I thought it was her, but she was immobile and kind of smiling and shadowy. So I understood it wasn't her. I got scared and screamed, and that's when my room's door opened and my mother came in to see what was happening. She never believed me and said it was a nightmare, but it wasn't. My theory was that it was my mom from another dimension or a parallel universe that had lost her daughter, me, or something completely different. 
Ooh, I like that one. I know, I like that one too. And then Sid Barrett writes, This happened when my eldest brother was about three years old, some three years before I was ever born. My mom has told the story numerous times. My brother was lying in my parents' bed next to my dad who's watching TV. It was nighttime and my mom was getting ready for bed when she saw something in the corner of her eye. She turned to look at it and there's a shadow person standing outside the sliding glass door, tall, black as night with glowing red eyes. My mom screamed in terror and noped right the fuck into bed. And that's when my brother said the most horrifying thing. It's all right, mommy. That's just the organizer. He helps me organize my army guys. My cousin gave him to me. That is so creepy. It reminded me so much of Deja. It really does. Yeah. But the glowing red eyes. Yeah, you know, like there it is out in the wild. Organically yeah, mentioned. Definitely. And then some people said uh, they are demons or jinn. Jinn's a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> and then Butcher Babe 777 has some really interesting thoughts. That's the one that says they're jinn. She says they're not good. I am a sensitive empath and I feel death. Cool. Good resume. I've never been approached by a good shadow person. They put on a facade to get you to let down your guard if you have one. The most frightening experience I've had was about three months ago. I was visiting my hometown and staying at my mother's house. I was in the back bedroom, laying in bed, and I turned the TV off for the night. The door was closed, and the room was pitch black, and I felt I heard someone in my room. I just looked toward the door and saw a tall black figure. It was so dark that I could see it in the pitch black. I asked who it was, and with no answer, I asked what it wanted, and it moved closer. I felt such fear and weight. I become desensitized to spirits. So, this was odd. It wanted me to be afraid. I yelled as loud as I could, go away, leave me alone. It stayed, and I got up and picked up my phone and turned on the flashlight. And when the light filled the room, the black figure was gone, but my door was cracked open. I grabbed my rosary that was blessed and an eagle feather, and I prayed till I fell asleep. I never pray. I still don't know what it wanted, but now it is masking itself as a little boy, seven, maybe eight, with black hair and sad eyes. I've told him to leave, but he still peeks around corners at me. Don't encourage them. Tell them to go away. And she goes on, it's the emotional imprint they leave on you. So one other thread that I found that was pretty interesting was on the paranormal subreddit uh, in the thread Hatman (sighs) by user Thalia Tiny. She starts, I've mentioned my weirdness before and how my daughter seems to have inherited it. A few days ago, as the school year was coming to an end, my daughter brought me her artwork from school and a couple of her sketchbooks. She's definitely inherited her artistic streak from my side of the family. Actually, my father's side. We are an artistic line. Some of us have the gift of music, others are painting and drawing, some acting, writing. I got the musical gift and some writing. My daughter can draw very well. I would say extremely well. In one of her sketchbooks, she had a couple of drawings of the shadows that she'd seen in her room when she was younger, Hmm. and I nearly puked. She and her little brother had mentioned seeing scary shadows in their rooms, but it was never to the point that they would scream or run and get in bed with me, and I would only hear about it months or even years after the facts. One of the drawings was of a man in a wide-brimmed hat that was pulled down low over his eyes. He had a grin on his face. The other was a less distinct-shaped man with white eyes. I asked about the drawings, where and when she saw them, if she was scared, if she dreamed of them, and she said she remembered seeing them, but it might have been dreaming since she was young. And finally, I asked her if she'd heard about the hat man, and she said she hadn't. I told her that some people claimed that seeing shadow men wearing a hat like that, and she kind of blew me off. But it's been bugging me for days now. Ooh. 
So I mentioned Heidi Hollis, who does a lot of research into shadow people and hat man. She does a lot of, you know, story collecting. And one time she was on Coast to Coast AM and she was talking about this correspondence she had with a soldier who was stationed on a base in Germany that was supposedly haunted. And he would see shadow people and he saw the hat man. And one day he asked him, what is your name? What are you? And he said, Scratch. Oh, shit. I know that. Yeah? So that's a uh, that's word for the devil. The devil. That's a very southern word, though. It is a very southern word for the devil. Old scratch, usually. Old scratch. So old scratch, the devil, the devil. A lot of people think that shadow people might represent demons, especially with the red glowing eyes. And particularly the hat man as Satan himself. Okay, I can see that. I can see it's like a man set apart, uh, almost like a crown. You know, like something to distinguish him. Or halo. Meh. <laughs> I think he lost that. I think he did too. Oh, where he wears the hat to cover up his horns. Exactly. So the devil has many names down south. Many derive from Christianization of African slave or West, West African trickster deities, such as, of course, we've talked about the Yoruba traditions, you know, things like that, going into Papalaba and Legba. And, of course, Scratch is a name for the same figure in, like, Missouri area. So a little more north-south. <laughs> Missouri is north-south. It has no idea what it is. And so often they're described as... Wearing black... With a hat. A Legba's hat is more like a straw hat, though. You know who it reminds me of? If we're going to go the, uh, the voodoo voodoo route? Yeah. Uh, Baron Samdi. And I know. I know. I think some people may be kind of conflating, conflating the two. And they are conflated often yeah. in pop culture. Uh, but, you know, he has this, like, the wide-brimmed wicker hat. And that is more how the hat is often described as this wide-brimmed hat. I always say it looks like the Quaker hat. Yeah, and not like a top hat. Mm-hmm. You know, it can vary, of course. And so the man in black is a figure that is very prominent in Southern lore. Right, Johnny Cash. He is a legend. Different man in black. Fine. The devil. Oh, yeah, very different. Of course, I think the man in black had plenty of run-ins with the man in black. We will do an episode on Johnny Cash one day. <laughs> we just will. We'll find an excuse. So now you can... Make your own deal with the man in black. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Don't. Get a black cat bone. Disclaimer. We do not endorse making deals with the devil. You might not. It never works well. It usually doesn't. A Faustian bargain is a term for a reason. Get your black cat bone. Put your nail trimmings with the black cat bone in a bag. Now during a full moon, bring the bag and, you know, maybe your guitar to a lonely crossroads just before midnight. Kneel in the middle of the crossroads and chant six times, maybe to Legba. Open the gates. Now, just at the stroke of midnight, you may hear footsteps behind you. Don't look up until they stop. A hand will reach down and might take your guitar. Standing before you will be a tall man dressed in a sharp black suit. Do not speak to him. He might take your guitar, tune it, and even play you the devil's song. When he hands it back to you, the deal is done. Your soul belongs to him. Now, we do cover this more extensively in our Deal with the Devil episode. And, of course, Robert Johnson famously probably didn't, but sold his soul to the devil so he could be such a masterful guitar player. He definitely did, dude. Now, you're mentioning that, you know, that they would wear 
might wear the hat to cover their horns. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a very popular Mexican folk tale about the man in black. And there are a few different versions of it. Often, a very sharply dressed man will come about. And one that I love is about, like, the dance. So, you, a woman out dancing, you're doing things she's not supposed to do. And she's dancing with this sharply dressed, fine-looking young man. And then realizes that he has cloven feet. It's spooky. So, he's the devil. He's the devil. She's been dancing with the devil. In the pale moonlight. <sighs> now, European folklore... Way back in the day, in the Middle Ages, we would often describe Satan as a black man. And the Puritans imported these ideas with them to America. America! Like, just a man with black skin is what the, yes. the Europeans meant. Yes, yes. Are we not, are we not going to talk about the implications that that had when it was brought over to the New World? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious. Right, right. <laughs> So, let's blame the Puritans for everything? We do that anyway. Cool! But right, so, you know, we've kind of talked about the older traditions, the biblical kind of implications of, you know, of what blackness represented. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And you can see the Lost Cause episode to learn more on that. Moving on. So, you can look at these old texts from the Middle Ages from Europe. Here's a few choice selections. So in this 15th century text, the Waldonesians, their Sabbath, their evil deeds, and how to prosecute them (laughs) by anonymous writer. And so the Waldonesians were Christian heretics. Ah. At least the church thought they were. Cool. On a busy night, as happened last year on the eve of St. Martin in the winter, at one and the same place and at one and the same time, there were several presiding demons at several meetings. For example, the meeting of Gilliam Tenor in the shape of a black man in the wood of Nothriel. Now, in Jean Vincent's What Workers of Magic Can Do from 1475. He's got to be British. Title is so literal. There is a demon in the shape of a black man. An elderly female fortune teller called Chandelle from Chelles conceived a hatred for the local prior. She constructed a doll or image and had it baptized under the name of the prior, dusted its shins with powders a demon had given her, and buried it under the threshold of the prior's door. Immediately, the prior was seized by a serious illness, took to his bed, and suffered such a great humoral flux that the discharge kept on flowing down in rivulets from his open ulcers. Ew. One day, this chandelle was looking after her animals out at pasture when a demon appeared in the likeness of a black man wearing, she thought, short clothes. So when do we get the transformation from the black man to the man in black? So it's hard to say. There's probably more than one answer to that. But the man in black definitely plays an important role in the importantest of witch trials in the United States. The Salem Witch Trials. I've heard of them. Have you? I went to Salem to hear about them. <laughs> yes, I've heard of them. So in the initial furor of arrest. The um, crucible, right? if you will. Yeah, three people mm-hmm. arrested. Mm-hmm. So it's the Sarahs. There's Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne and Tichaba. Right. The Sarahs denied everything. Right. They had nothing to do with this. They don't know what they're talking about. I don't know why these little kids are saying that we're pinching them in their sleep and trying to kill them. Kids, that's what kids do. I mean. But Tituba 
So she has more of a story to tell. She goes with it. She leans in. She has her Sandberg moment, if you will. Oh, she is all the way in. So she says in her testimony, the devil came to me and bid me serve him. Only the day before, a tall, white-haired man in a dark serge coat had appeared. He traveled from Boston with his accomplices, and he ordered Tichiba to hurt the children, and he would kill her if she did not. So he's wearing something dark. Man in black. Man in black appears at the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. Hmm. And her testimony is full of details and extremely vague all at the same time. Mm. Now, of course, she has seen the diabolical book. Has she seen Black Philip? Must have. She signed it in her own blood. But they ask her who else has signed the book. The only two names she can remember are the Sarahs. Oh. She said, I must serve him six years and he would give me many fine things. That's a better deal than she's got right now. Mm -hmm. And she says that she witnessed the Sarahs flying on sticks back from Boston (laughs) with the man in black. And interestingly, another witness had previously described a mysterious visitor, Abigail Hobbs. And that's why I know a writer. I don't know. (laughs) And she described him in the traditional sense. Okay, as a black man. Yes. But after Tichuba's testimony, which put everybody up in arms, she changed her story. And suddenly it was a man wearing black. A man in black. I was confused. It was dark. Now, if you think about it, or if you, and you've seen The Crucible, or you've seen The Witch, it's kind of what everyone wore. Right. Not that remarkable. And historians will maybe sometimes point to one of the clerical leaders who had really strong ties to Boston, and maybe she was kind of poking... Pointing the finger, finger at, at him, but not exactly because she can't say his name or she would be done. Yeah. But if she could gin up some suspicion, that wouldn't be half bad. May I just proffer, sir, that the Salem witch trials are like if we executed people for things said on Reddit. Oh, yeah, basically. <sighs> like and, if your Reddit comments had real world consequences. <laughs> I mean, and that's what happened. This testimony confirmed their worst fears. There was... Someone there, the devil himself, himself in person, in, in a surge coat. And he was recruiting. And it wasn't just the women, it was men too. Everyone was under suspicion. And there were deaths of many people due to this kind of confirmation that there was a man in black amongst them that was doing the devil's work and signing people up in his book. So that at least was Tichiba's fault. <laughs> So, you know, while the, not... I mean, the uh, transformation from... Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but it, is, it goes way further back than of the modern-day voodoo traditions. Although, I guess you could go back to the Yoruba traditions and maybe say there's just, just, like everything, this big kind of melting pot amalgamation of things. And you know what? She wasn't even executed. And in this context... One might expect that that would have been the likely outcome, right? Yeah. Oh, and no, you know, another important fact, another important thing I didn't say. She's often depicted as a black slave, mm-hmm. you know, that would be of African descent, but she was actually of Native American descent. That's oh, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. There's some really great articles about that. That's just, we don't have time to go into. I think the fact that she's Native American is everything well, with like, our earlier story. Yeah, but also, like, if you go back to, like, where'd she get that idea, it just makes it even more of a, I don't know. You know, she probably was just pointing to 
cleric dude. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of, that kind of leads us through the, the he's the devil and he's recruiting idea. Right. A lot of people think that he's the devil. He's a demon. But there are other ideas too, you know? Some people think that he's an omen. He appears when something, something's about to happen, which I think they mean something bad is about to happen. I would tend to agree they're not there to tell you that you're going to get an edible bouquet. You just need to be nice to them. So I may have a a case of this happening. This is another Reddit story? It's not. It's so much better. Really? It's from the Robert Stack Collection. Oh, good. Yes, we've got an Unsolved Mysteries special here, folks. So. Maybe you can solve it. Maybe it's you. (laughs) Maybe it's you. So Cynthia Jane Anderson disappeared on August 4th, 1981. She was 20 years old, and she's working at a law firm that belonged to James Rabbit and Jay Feldstein on East Manhattan Boulevard in Toledo, Ohio. Ohio is the other place where all the crazy shit happens. I swear, like, whatever is ley line Ohio is on. <laughs> I mean, it is on an ancient Indian burial ground. Yeah, well, that's accurate. <laughs> all of it. So people reported to the police that they saw Miss Anderson as late as 9.45 a.m., but people calling the law office told the attorneys that they had tried calling and not gotten a response around 10 a.m. So there's like a 15-minute window. That's tiny. Right? So also missing from the building were her keys and purse. Her vehicle remained in the parking lot. The radios and air conditioner were both on inside the building, indicating that she'd come in and... Getting things ready for the day. Yeah, like started the day. The exterior door was locked, as was her practice. And there was a romance novel on the desk, which was open to a page about an abduction. No. Crazy. Right? There was no note left on the door, and she normally did that whenever she had to step out. She also left behind a substantial amount of money in her bank account, and her social security number had not been used since the time that she disappeared. Hmm. Now... Prior to her disappearance, someone had spray-painted on the side of the building, I Love You, Cindy, by GW. It was whitewashed over, but then it was spray-painted on that same wall again. Really? And her name was Cynthia, but she was called Cindy. Now, later it would be uncovered that there was another Cindy that worked in the building who was seeing a maintenance man with the initials GW. But talk about some weird synchronicity. Weird coincidences. Yes, sir. Now, she was also receiving some very disturbing phone calls at work in the weeks prior to her disappearance, which seemed to disturb her. Larry Mullins, who was a client at the law office where Cindy worked, said, The day before Cynthia Anderson disappeared, I'd been in the law offices to pay a legal fee. She got a phone call, and she kind of reacted like maybe it was obscene or something and hung up real quick. And the look on her face, still, I can picture it today. She was scared. She was honestly and sincerely scared. It gives me the shivers to think of that look on her face. I went home, and I called the police department and asked them to do a drive-by and check on her. Something scared the hell out of her, in my opinion. Now, her family reported that she'd also suffered from a recurring nightmare of being attacked by a shadowy man. Really? Yes. Interesting. And she was so nervous that something was going to happen that they actually installed an emergency buzzer in her desk at her place of employment. 
And I assume it was not used. It was not used. It would ring the store next door if anything bad was going down. Hmm. And she also kept the office doors locked at all times because she'd been, you know, there had been the painting on the wall, the bad dreams, and the phone calls. And it was just getting to be a little much. So we have someone that disappeared in this tiny window of time that was having dreams about a shadowy man attacking her. Yes. Hmm. The case remains unsolved. They've never found any remains. But from the instant she disappeared, law enforcement officers actually had the same sense that something had gone horribly wrong. And even the attorneys that worked there with her said that they knew they would never see her again. That kind of ominous foreboding. Like normally if a 20-year-old woman disappears, people assume she left of her own volition. So did anyone come forward to anything else? happen any clues anything Uh, well about a month after she disappeared there was a strange phone call from a woman to the police detective adams said that a woman called to report that cindy was being held in the basement of a white house Uh. but they could never get in touch with the woman they went to the address where she mentioned like the street she said this was on and they couldn't find any white houses with basements it was just sort of a weird turn of events and Previously, like four people had been murdered who worked at the supermarket that was in the same shopping center where the law office was. That's suspicious. It's very suspicious, but they were all found. So this is a case of an adult interacting with like a shadowy figure, kind of an ominous figure. But I think it's even more disturbing to imagine the role that these kind of figures play in children's lives. A lot of the stories we heard so far have to do with children. And a lot of the, you know, like even the Salem witch trials had these dark figures interacting with children, right? Right. I mean, you can't help but think of like the boogeyman. Right. It's an obvious connection. And of course, we've done an episode on the boogeyman, the idea of the boogeyman. But there are some specific ones that have this very specific imagery, such as an Eastern Mediterranean countries children who misbehave are threatened with the creature known as babau and in italy and romania the babau is also called the umo nero the black man and in italy he's portrayed as a tall man wearing a heavy black coat with a black hood or hat which hides his face now sometimes parents will even knock loudly under the table pretending that someone's knocking at the door and say something like ah here comes the Umonero. He must know that there's a child here who doesn't want to drink his soup. Now, this mysterious, darkly shrouded boogeyman is said to come and take children away to a frightening place. A popular lullaby says that he would keep a child with him for a whole year. Ew. Now, in Germany, there's the Baumann and Der Schwarzmann the black man, an inhuman creature which hides in the dark corners or under the bed or in the closet and will carry children away. And the list can go on and on for ages and ages. <laughs> but this idea of, you know, this boogeyman just hiding in someone's room or waiting until you misbehave, just watching from the corner or under your bed is omnipresent. Global idea. So I want to look at one more case that I thought was really interesting and understand that these are definitely real cases, real people are involved. 
And I'm not trying to put a supernatural spin or minimize anything that is actually happening. I'm just saying, let's look at the story with this lens. And it's kind of like, why are we, why are we so scared of these things? You know, why are they so omnipresent? It's because sometimes the worst happens. And that was the case with Michaela Joy Garrett. Now, it was November 19th, 1988, and she was a nine-year-old girl in Hayward, California, which is in the East Bay area around San Francisco. And it had a population of around 100,000 people, so not a terribly large or small place, mid-sized town. It was the first day of Thanksgiving break, and she was with her eight-year-old friend, Katrina Rodriguez. And they asked her mother if they could have permission to ride their scooters to like this nearby bodega uh, that's called the Rainbow Market to buy snacks. This was unusual, but mom went along with it, and Sharon, their mom, gave them permission to go. And they left home around 10 a.m., then made their way to the store and completed the purchase. They began to walk away from the store, and then they realized that they'd forgotten their scooters. And so they turned back to retrieve them, but one of them had been moved, and it was in the parking lot, laying beside a tan sedan. So Michaela went to retrieve the scooter at which time a man emerged from the vehicle and grabbed Michaela around her waist and forced her into the car before speeding away. He drove down Mission Avenue, and at that time Katrina ran inside at 10.15 and alerted the cashier that her friend had been abducted and the attendant called 911. Rod, Michaela's father, heard the commotion and went into the mother's home and told her that Michaela has been taken and told her to call 911. Mom has no idea at this point what's going on, because then he runs down the street to the store. And she, too, calls 911. So what you're saying is every parent's worst nightmare. Actually, literally every parent's worst nightmare. You take your eye off them for one second and the worst possible thing happens. So there's no security footage at the store because, again, this is every parent's nightmare. And Trina, who's eight, this is an eight-year-old, and the cashier, who did not get the best view of the entire situation, did give the information to police and work with a sketch artist and created this composite sketch. We've talked about some of the problems with composite sketches in our This Man episode. I feel like having that so early on may have... Skewed the search. Yeah. Eliminated people that didn't necessarily need to be eliminated. The man was described as being around 19 years old, white, with a pockmarked face, and stringy, dirty blonde hair. Now, the case received a lot of media attention. It was covered on Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. It was their first ever missing persons case to air on America's Most Wanted. Really? Yeah. That's shocking. 15,000 tips and leads came in. And, of course, nothing's digitized because it's 1988. And so this is all literally written on paper and put into files. Michaela has her own room at the police department full of file cabinets. And boxes and things. And this is still an unsolved case, just like the other one. Yes, it remains an open case. It's 30 years old. Michaela's mother, Sharon, still runs a blog about this case and kind of updating and going through and talking to people about, like, I don't like this suspect. I don't believe that thing. I do. I don't. So she's, like, interacting with the web sleuths out there. She is. And most importantly, maybe, she has a page called, like, How to Get Home. Oh, oh, wow. And it, like, tells her where to go, whatever country she's in, or, like, a lot of people have said they think she's in the UAE, and, like, there yeah. are, like, directions on, like, who to get help from, and numbers to call, and ways to get a hold of us, whatever you can do. Like, it's... That's actually, like, really forward-thinking on it the mom's is part. I'm impressed. so 
heartbreaking. And then down the side, it has a message to Michaela in like basically every language. Like in case she's like picked up another language or like brainwashed. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's just all down the side. It's, it's overwhelming. But one post stood out to me. It's actually got its own little link. You can go and find it. It's called Michaela's poem. And Sharon writes, a week before Michaela was kidnapped, I woke up early. It was about 5.30, still dark outside, and I was surprised to find Michaela sitting at the coffee table in the living room with a piece of paper and a pencil in front of her. Mom, she said, holding out the paper to me, I wrote a poem. Do you want to read it? Of course I did. I took the page from her. I read it. I put down the baby I was holding and sat down. This was an astounding poem for a nine-year-old girl to have written. The people knock on doors of steel. The people knock. The people kneel. They think of things that aren't real. Outside those doors of steel, the people walk. The people know that outside those doors, the people know. The people think that you might say. The people think that they too may. They lack the confidence you have. They think it's real. The dreams you have. The dreams they feel. Very dark poem. For a nine-year-old. For a nine-year-old. So she went on to explain, Michaela did, that she'd been awakened by noises in our attic. She said that there were people who had been kidnapped who were being held captive in our attic. You know, she said, like the movie, The Peanut Butter Solution. She was referring to a children's movie, which was about a crazy artist who kidnapped people and used a peanut butter solution to make their hair grow really quickly. He then cut off their hair and used it to make magic paintbrushes, which painted pictures that came to life that you could actually walk into. Movies were so dark when we were kids. I know. But no, I mean, I could see, you know, you being this mom and like, oh, well, this is just like about that movie. No big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. But then when you look back, it's just frightening. It kind of stuck in her brain. And a, couple, a little while later, she asked her if she was one of the people behind the doors of steel. And Michaela said, no, I'm not one of the people behind the doors of steel. Who was? It gives me chills. It does. So... This has been a hellacious experience for the family. Of course. Um, especially because it was linked to two other prominent cases. There were a pair of serial killers known as the Speed Freak Killers in the East Bay area. There's so many serial killers over there. There really were. And they discovered um, their burial ground. One of the guys, like, told about it. And then he said that his partner looked a lot like the sketch in the case of... That Hayward girl is what he called her, referring huh. to Michaela. And so they were like, we should check. And so while they're excavating this burial ground, they're like in water tanks and out in the desert. And it's like this massive months long investigation. The mom's sitting there scared to death. They're going to find the remains almost. But then at the same time, like hoping for closure, I imagine, in some dark corner of her soul. Like just like at least one way or another, I'll know. And then they find a child sized bone. No. Yes. And so then they have to do DNA testing. And so then they type it, yeah. right? And yeah. it matches the type. So uh, now they have to do further testing. Which back then would take forever. Right. And so then they do the mitochondrial testing and it's inconclusive. And then they do another round of testing and it takes literally a year. Oh, yeah. You were sitting around wondering for a year. So this all transpires. And then Philip Garrado. Who's that? Philip Garrado makes his grand TV debut when J.C. Duggard escapes. Oh, right. And 
Katrina, her friend that was with her at the Rainbow Market the morning she was taken, is watching the coverage of J.C. DeGard and sees what she believes to be the sedan that Michaela was shoved into. And so they get out there. They tear all the outbuildings down. They're like using ground-penetrating radar and cadaver dogs and every other thing known to man to try and see if maybe Garado took Michaela because it was like two months before he kidnapped JC or something. I can't remember the exact amount of time. Don't quote me on that. But JC was interviewed about it. And she said she never remembered her being there, never saw her, never right. heard her. And Garado and his partner Nancy were polygraph, which, you know. Completely. I know. Worthless. But. Especially for a psychopath. Right? Well, the fact that both of them managed. But still. still. But I do believe that JC would have mentioned it. You know, like. Yeah, but there were other buildings. There were other areas. He could have just picked her up and killed her. Anything. Right. And I, I think that that is something, like, especially on, like, the, the Web Sleuths Forum and things like that. A lot of people have a hard time letting him go. I think he also has an alibi for the day that it happened. Uh, okay. Like, he, it seems so right. There's a physical resemblance between J.C. Duggard and her. The timing's right. The area's right. And it's just, it would be nice if there were not more bad people, I think, is, the, is the, what we hold on to. Right. Like, it would be great if there were not another psychopath, if all the bad things were his fault. So I have a little girl that is abducted. The absolute worst nightmare for parents, and of course the child as well, but... Previously, she'd been having these like dreams or seeing or hearing things up in the attic and writing poems about people trapped behind doors. Very, very ominous. Right. And there's kind of these, this idea of like two sets of people, those that know and those that don't know. Right. And it's, it's ominous. I mean, I'm looking for omens here and that's ominous. Very ominous. And there's somebody there. So this gets us into the like... The realm of pure, I just don't know what to make of it. Like speculation? Yeah, it's like this is a weird thing that happened. Okay, it's all gives kind me, of a weird thing. <laughs> no, that gives me even more like ick and weird. And just there's something weird about this case. It sticks in my craw. I, I don't know what it is. It bugs me. Okay, what is it? So there's this guy named Tim Bidner. And if you research anything about Michaela you will find his name. He is forever linked to her case. So is he a suspect? Person of interest. Okay. But not officially. So he was a former Social Security Administration employee, and he was kind of obsessed with missing kids. He's fired from his job for using confidential information to send young girls birthday cards. Uh. Now he would write the cards backwards so that they could only be read with a mirror. Ah, sounds like a TV show. It is straight up like criminal minds kind of stuff. Now, these cards were never mailed to the girls who actually disappeared in this area. But there was one sent to the neighborhood where a girl had gone missing from. So it was another girl who is not missing, but a girl in that neighborhood had gone missing. Okay. And so... Her parents were understandably alarmed by this, like, basically secret admirer note for the, like, 12-year-old that could only be read in a mirror and seemed weird and creepy. And so they alerted the police. Police tracked down who did it, and it was Tim Bidner. And he was also known to visit the grave of a young girl named Angela Bugay, who was five when she was abducted and murdered. He would visit her grave at night, 
And he said that he was psychically linked to these girls, but he did not match the description of the kidnapper. And after he was noted by police and kind of named as a suspect in several missing persons cases, he actually successfully sued the police department for $90,000. Interesting. For Um, defamation? For defamation. So he was odd. There's no doubt about that. He was specifically interested in the cases of Michaela Angela Bugay, the young girl whose grave he'd visit, a girl who was abducted from the Bay Area named Amanda Nikki Campbell, and a girl named Amber Schwartz. And he's also been linked or tied to the cases of Eileen Misselhoff and Tara Cossey. And all these girls disappeared along I-80 in California. And he said that he had just been sending cards to young girls because he thought maybe they were lonely. He thought it was nice, and he thought that they would like it. Okay. He was 43, probably, around this time. He spoke extensively with a reporter with the last name Goldstone. And a lot of this information comes from her reporting. Now, he once wrote a letter to law enforcement stating that he believed that there was another girl about to be abducted and that she would be nine years old. It's very Zodiac. <laughs> right. And this happened shortly before Michaela was abducted. And she was nine years old. Correct. It's very suspicious. And then on another occasion, he sent a Christmas card to an FBI profiler and it had an image of a little girl holding up four fingers. And shortly after, a four-year-old named Nikki disappeared. It was very Zodiac of him. It is very Zodiac of him. Maybe he sent the letters. Maybe so. And then he would speculate on how the girls behaved when they were abducted in a way that seemed very odd to this reporter. He said, well, you know, one of them was sweet and shy and didn't say a thing, and the other went kicking and screaming. He says, I'm just guessing that that's what they would have said. Now, he also urged Schwartz's mother one of the girl's mothers, to read Crime and Punishment, in which a character who keeps showing up turns out to be the man who actually committed the crime. What the hell? Yeah. And many people think he just enjoys, like, taunting the families and law enforcement. No one's really sure why. He was once arrested for annoying two little girls whom he was trying to lure into his van. I don't know if this is true. But he apparently did have a van, and he did have a personalized license plate that said, Love you. And he refers to himself as a good Samaritan. So he told the reporter that he would meet with her on the condition that she met him at Oakmont Cemetery at 4.30 a.m. This guy's trying to be an evil villain. Well, he played his favorite song on the radio for her, and it was called Jesus, Here's Another Child to Hold. And he told Goldston that he had come to think of these girls as his children, that he cried about them, that he prayed for them, and that he spent a long time thinking about them, and that he dedicated himself to trying to find them. He also reached out to Michaela's mother in the hours following her abduction. She writes, he said he wanted to go out and look for Michaela. He brought a map and showed us where he wanted to go. Now, he did a similar thing in the hours after Amber Short's disappearance, and he told Kim Short's, her mother, I wanted to be the one to save her. I wanted to be the one to bring her home to you. Now, bloodhounds traced the scent of Nikki and Amber to Angela Bugay's gravesite. Like her formal gravesite. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? In the cemetery. Did they dig it up? No. Interesting. But he also told an FBI profiler who wrote a book about him called Stalemate that if he were going to hide bodies, he would put them in graves. God. So, I don't like any of this behavior. Let me be clear. 
I find the fact that he's pressing people up to the line, almost like trying to make himself appear guilty, even if he's not. Uh, he is playing is, games, but no matter what. Is, I don't understand it. Maybe that's the best. I just don't understand it. I do find it interesting that if you go look at Michaela's case and then follow the links to you know the other girls' cases, his name's always going to be there. And it's going to be a bunch of people who are sitting around in web sleuth forums Saying, like, he's obsessed with these kidnapping cases. How fucked up is this guy? And they're with, all obsessed with, with kidnapping, kidnapping cases. cases. And that's, like, that irony is hard for me to shake. But at the same time, they're not fucking with reporters, law enforcement, and the mothers. Well, some of them are contacting True. the family. Yeah. That does happen. Like, people cross the line. And most people don't, of course. And this guy is incredibly disturbing and he's like up in their faces too like he's going the day it happens and looking and stuff that's you know it's a it's a different thing than sending along some information or a list of questions i guess another thing you should know is that he does have like this genuine good samaritan complex that's a real thing he was given an award for heroism by the california highway patrol for assisting in rescue efforts after the 1989 earthquake Interesting. And he continues to insist that he has nothing to do with their disappearances. And in at least two of the cases that have been linked to him, the murders have been solved using things like DNA evidence. And the murderers were, you know, not him. So there's this string of things that are supposed to be connected to him that don't end up connected to him. Like, they find the culprit. Um, He's not the culprit. hmm. I don't know what to make of him. I mean, it's hard to not wonder if he was, like, stalking these kids. I mean, we know he was at least... Somewhat. He was sending cards. He was looking up their confidential information. Like their birthdays. To send a birthday card. Right. right? It's like, <laughs> was he stalking her? And that was some of the inspiration for the poem and the, you know, the thoughts that someone was hiding in her attic? Well, he claims to be like psychically linked to these kids, right? So this far out woo theory. Let's just go here for one second as we discuss this for the sake of boldly going. I don't want to boldly go. <laughs> sake of intellectual pursuit whatever far out woo theory he claims to be psychically connected to these kids right okay one of the kids he has like foreknowledge of if you want to call it that is the next girl that's going to be abducted is going to be nine right michaela Mm -hmm. she starts getting this idea about kidnapping and that there are kidnapped people in her attic is he sending that to her to warn her oh god samantha (laughs) why not why not? Or is he staring outside of her window at night? Worse. Making noises as he moves about. If he's doing that, he's the one that took her. I don't know. I don't think that you... There's no way to prove that. I'm just saying. Like, if he's lurking, I don't know. I don't know. Is he watching her? Is he watching her? And is he trying to warn her? So as we you know, looked through all of these different versions of shadow people, no one knows why people are seeing shy people what do they represent are they the devil the man in black are they a demon are they are they an omen are they a dark influence are they a warning or could they be as some people will say this representation of that negative side of our psyche Ah, the Jungian interpretation. Yeah. Are they just a almost physical representation or just a projection of these negative thoughts that might be 
clouding our consciousness. So in 2015, the New York Times published an article about the recent spate of suicides on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And in it, there's this interesting little nugget. Because of long-standing legends and stories, these mysterious suicides in South Dakota have sometimes been attributed to malicious spirit. He is called Walking Sam. And while that name sounds harmless, the being embodies it is anything but. Walking Sam, the shadow man, convinces teens to commit suicide by whispering to them that they are worthless, not deserving of affection or life. We don't know much about the spirit, because those in the tribe keep the stories quiet. We do know that his existence supposedly brings on lots of suicide. And whether it's supernaturally caused or not, suicide has been a growing problem in Native Americans of South Dakota. So Walking Sam, or the tall man, is supposed to be very tall, obviously. Right. Um, Shadowy. He's a lean figure with long arms. He has eyes, but does not have a mouth or nose. And when he lifts his arms, the souls of both Lakota women and men hang from them. Very creepy. Very creepy. Now, he's been, like, associated with, conflated with a Bigfoot that's kind of in the South Dakota area that often wears a stovepipe hat. Yes. And so that is the Chiatanka. And it's this Bigfoot-like woodland spirit that it really has no ties to what is occurring. Other than it's tall. And in that area. And in the area. And hard to spot. Yeah, it's this nature spirit. So the chief of police for the Agala Sioux Tribe Department of Public Safety is named James Twist, and he told a writer at Cryptomundo the following information on August 17th, 2006. Quote, Also to set the record straight, the first two sightings were called in as a tall, 10 to 15 feet man who appeared to be wearing a stovepipe hat and a long coat. It's reported to be peeking into the apartment complex commons room where there were several witnesses. This is strange, as in the early 1980s, my brother was a police officer and responded to a call with another officer in the country about 35 miles east of Pine Ridge. And when they arrived, the family was in the living room with their dogs and they turned their furniture into a fort in the living room and they were armed with knives or whatever else they could find. They advised that they'd heard dogs running into their front yard and when they opened the doors, the dogs ran in and were scared. The family reported seeing a large man, his hips above the roof of their family car, wearing a stovepipe hat and a long coat. My brother and the other officer went outside where a man was reported to be, and they saw a light layer of ice was broken, and in the mud was disturbed, and something had moved toward the creek area. The family had the officers wait while they got together their belongings, and had the officers escort them from the residence. This isn't the only sighting we've had. They increase every spring and fall. Right, so that's a description of that kind of Bigfoot-like character. Well, this one specifically is wearing, like, just a man. Just a giant man. Just a giant man. Wearing a coat and a hat. It is interesting he's wearing a coat. Because Bigfoot's, like, wearing a hat. It's it's really... I feel like it's kind of conflated, mm-hmm. these two ideas. And so... Bigfoot researchers are always trying to find older references, like in Native American lore and things like that, to creatures that could be a Bigfoot. Now, there are another group of beings in Native American lore that are also referenced by the non-Bigfoot researchers that may be related to this. This is, of course, starting on internet forums and things like that, and it's the Siaco, or the Stick Indians. And so the stick Indians are something that 
are very prevalent throughout Native American lore. And they're very different depending on where you are. So one version of the Stick Indians that more closely resembles this is not necessarily from the Sioux region near the Dakota area, but is from the Northwest. And that's the Yakima tribe. So these are descriptions from uh, written down in 1916 of the Stick Indians. Now they're the size of a person. And under the cover of darkness, they perform the acts which have fastened upon them the odious appellation stick shower. It is then they thrust sticks through any opening of the teepee or hunter's lodge or shower sticks upon the belated traveler. The Indian who is delayed or lost from the trail is very apt to receive their attention. He may hear a signal, perhaps a whistle, ahead of him. Should he follow the sound, it will be repeated for a time. But then he will hear it in the opposite direction along the path he has just passed. If he turns back, it will only be to detect the mysterious noises elsewhere, leading to utter confusion and bewilderment. So they also describe the stick shower Indians as tall, slender, a good runner, and has medicine which gives him swiftness and strength. Now it's the delight of the stick Indians to carry away captives, children who may become lost or separated from their parents. Now they tell a story about a brother and sister, two little kids that were missing from a hunter village in the mountains. Now, of course, the parents and the tribe searched and searched. They found small footprints showed between the imprints of adult tracks. Now, long afterwards, about 20 years later, the parents of the lost children were camped in the mountains gathering huckleberries. One night, while sitting in their lodge, a stick was thrust through a small crevice in the wall. The old man immediately called out, You need not come here and bothering me. I know you. You took my two children. So the stick Indian withdrew from the side of the teepee. But he was the lost boy. When he could not remember his native tongue, he recognized his own name spoken by the old Indian, his father. He lingered about the lodge all night, fearing to enter. As daylight appeared, he went back to his people and told his sister what he had seen and heard that their own parents were in the lone lodge of the berry patch. The next night he returned to the lodge, but did not enter nor let his presence be known. The third night he came again with his sister and entered the lodge. He made the old people to understand that they were their lost children. The children came often to see their parents, often bringing salmon in abundance. Now these stick Indians that would come and steal children away or lead a lost traveler off their path often inhabit dark recesses of the woods. People will see their campfires at a distance. They sleep by day but sally forth at dusk for a night of it. They rob traps, break canoes, steal food. Their wickedness and malicious cunning is credited all the unfortunate and malicious acts which cannot otherwise be explained. He is a constant menace to the disobedient child and is an object of fear and terror to all. So good old-fashioned boogeyman, sociopathic, mischievous spirit. Yeah, and, and I would, you know, just reading through some forms and stuff, a lot of Native American commenters would be like, oh yeah, my grandma would tell me that stick Indians would come and get me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like that. So it has a very boogeyman kind of appearance, but it's also this kind of dark spirit that lives among the... You know, dark recesses of the woods. And like I said, they do appear through Native American lore. Uh, one tribe might describe them as large, bear-like, with big feet, covered with hair. 
that lives in the caves and the mountains and will leave during fishing season to carry off young girls and smother babies and steal salmon. An Arapaho man even said online that he had recently seen one of these stick Indians when he was out hunting the Wind Rivers, silhouetted on a rock above his head. Hmm, rock inspector. Right? Sounds like the Watchers. Now, like in the Nez Pierce tellings of the stick Indians, they're more like wild men. Okay, like wild men in the traditional sense? Yes. So nature spirity kind of? Well, no, I mean like in the very traditional sense, like the European sense. Like oh. they like uncivilized. Okay. There's even one story from way back then of a tribe finding a boy stick Indian and raising him, and it acts very much like a feral child. Mm, interesting. Now, sometimes they're also described as like little people. Like elves, kind of? Like, well, like leprechauns. Yeah, leprechauns, yeah. Oh, well, that story in the beginning, Olive's story about leaving the gifts and everything, it sounded very leprechaun-y. It does. It sounds very leprechaun-y. Even when Thomas Steinbeck was writing about it, he said, I really can't imagine why all this silly mystery has been about. I really can't imagine what all this silly mystery has been about, because I found the Watchers almost everywhere I went. The Sir is literally covered with the wee folk. Oh, we folk, it's straight up leprechaun-y. Right? And so the Sioux actually do have a forest spirit-like being called the Kenotila, which literally translates to little tree dweller. And they were considered messengers from the spirit world and often appeared to Sioux people in dreams. Interesting. Another interesting one is the Mimi in Aboriginal lore, these kind of nature spirits that are stick-like. Oh, okay. Very, very stick-like, and they hide in the crevices between rocks. You have to be stick-like. What would Jung say? Jung, Freud. Jung would say it's the collective unconsciousness. Freud would point out that there were sticks and crevices. This is why I like Jung. And of course, Native American lore is filled with more dark, ominous beings that really kind of fit the archetype that is described in these like news stories. And one of that is from our own neck of the woods. In Choctaw mythology, the Nalusa Falea, or the long black being. Yeah, that fits. He's described as a tall, spindly humanoid that can slither like a snake or become a shadow. It may frighten children from staying out too late and can bewitch hunters. So in a 1910 writing about Ms. of Louisiana Choctaw by David Bushnell, he writes about this saying that Nalasufalea somewhat resembles man. It's of about the size of a man and walks upright, but its face is shriveled. Its eyes are very small. Often when hunters are in the woods far from their home, late in the day, when the shadow is growing long beneath the pine trees, it will come forth. Getting quite near a hunter, it will call in a voice resembling that of a man. And some hunters, when they turn and see the Nalasufalea, are so affected that they fall to the ground and even become unconscious. And while the hunter is thus prostrated on the ground, it approaches and sticks a small thorn into his hand or foot, and by so doing bewitches the hunter and transmits to him the power of doing evil to others. But a person never knows when he has been so bewitched. The Nalasophilia may have many children which, when quite young, possess a peculiar power. They possess the power of removing their viscera at night, and in their lightened condition, they become rather small, luminous bodies that may often be seen along the borders of marshes. 
It's like Willow the Wisp. Kind of is, yeah. And it can transform into a shadow. And of course, that's not of the Sioux tradition, but it so resembles it. And I think kind of ever since that there are these darker beings that may not frequently be talked about to the outsiders in, you know, Native American communities. So Walking Sam is a very interesting character. And when I was looking for him, most of what I could find about him was mainstream writers covering it as a news story, covering the story of Walking Sam as a phenomena. Like related to the suicides on the Sioux Reservation. Yes, Pine Ridge Reservation specifically. There are two Sioux Reservations that have had huge suicide clusters in the last 11 years. But in 2015, New York Times covers the story. And this may be where he really gets a lot of attention and traction in the public sphere. So they state that nine people aged 12 to 24 have successfully committed suicide between December 2014 and May 2015. That's terrible. So from December 2014 to March 2015, there were 103 suicide attempts recorded, like where medical intervention was required. Just recorded. Yes. And this was just in people aged 12 to 24. So this is a suicide cluster. It is a major suicide cluster. Now, tribal officials, clergy members, and social workers say they can't remember such a high rate of suicides and attempts in such a short period of time on the reservation. There are only six mental health professionals to attend the population. And a lot of the parents or elders do speculate that cyberbullying is an important component in perpetuating the contagion. So is this where Walking Sam fits in? Yes. One of the elders said, I don't know if they were cyberbullied or if they had living conditions they didn't want to put up with or if they were sexually abused. Were they hungry? I don't know. So cyberbullying does affect a lot of people on the reservation, a lot of the teens especially. One 12-year-old girl hanged herself after being urged to commit suicide by another girl who attended her school on Facebook. Oh, God. And the New York Times sort of conflates Walking Slam and Slenderman here. Um, They said that several officials with knowledge of the case said that at least one of the youths who committed suicide was influenced by the Slenderman. And then Chris Carey, who's a minister who works with the youth, said they call him the tall man spirit. He's appearing to these kids and telling them to kill themselves. So the Sioux Tribe President John Yellowbird Steele says that there are many Native Americans who believe in a spirit which might provoke young people to suicide. He also states that many people in the Pine Ridge Reservation have been sharing bleak instructional videos on how to use nooses on Facebook. There are directions to a specific field, which is outside the village, where there's a tree where the nooses are already hanging. Was there really? Yes. Really? So that actually is a story from John Tubles, who is a pastor who works with youth on the reservation. And he said that in... 2014, he was tipped off to a group suicide that was planned in a wooded area outside of town. It was cold, it was dark, and there was this narrow row of trees with ropes hanging off the branches, he said. I was thankful I was able to get there without finding anyone hanging from the ropes. Some of the teens were there and were preparing to commit suicide in a group. They told him that they were tired of the lives they had at home with no food, with parents all intoxicated. Some were being abused both mentally and sexually. 
So, you know, you mentioned Slenderman. A lot of people are bringing it up because he does really resemble the Slenderman character. And Slenderman, of course, we've talked about and everyone knows about is an internet meme and he's used in various ways. And in some cases, does encourage kids and other people to do harm to others or themselves and says, you know, he'll take them off to a magical land like the case of the two girls. But this black clad, tall man in the shadows does not explain what's happening to the Sioux. It's much worse. It's not some mythical entity lurking in the shadows. No, it's an epidemic. So the CDC reported that from 2003 to 2014, and suicides disproportionately affect American Indian and Alaskan natives. And the suicide among that group has been increasing since 2003. And in 2015, the suicide rates in 18 states were 21.5 per 100,000, which is more than 3.5 times higher than those among racial ethnic groups with the lowest rates. So more than a third of those suicides that were recorded occurred in people aged 10 to 24. They also cited that there were higher rates of domestic abuse, higher rates of alcohol use and abuse, and that these children were statistically likely to live in rural areas where mental health care is sparse. Now, there have been large suicide clusters with more than 100 attempts in a year at two Lakota Sioux reservations, Pine Ridge and Rosebud, and that one took place in 2007. Now, there's a 70% dropout rate, 75% of adults suffer from alcoholism, 25% of children suffer from fetal alcohol syndrome, and there's 80% unemployment on the reservation. Now, a state of emergency had been declared in March 2010, and then later it was declared again in 2015 due to the rise in the number of suicides. Ruth Hopkins, a chief tribal judge for the Spirit Lake Nation, stated, I think the suicide in Native communities is an extension of the genocide that occurred against Indigenous people starting back in 1942. I think there's evidence to show that it's all continuing to this day. This is like a, a group trauma, almost. Like mm-hmm. one that is there that you have that constant reminder of every day, purely in just the living conditions that exists there's no food there's no heat you are barely getting by there's tons of drug abuse alcohol abuse that can all be linked to not necessarily one historical event in the past but all of the things that have led up to this current situation well according to one elder historical trauma response is a constellation of features in reaction to a massive group trauma responses like this have been observed among the lakota and other native populations, as well as Holocaust survivors and descendants of Japanese-American internment camp survivors and their descendants. That's very interesting. So the judge, Hopkins, states, Because where we were placed on these remote reservations, taken away from our homeland, the economic struggle we deal with to this day, all of those are reoccurring issues that we have to deal with with this intergenerational trauma. So speaking from her personal experience, she said, when I tried to commit suicide, I was 22 years old. I had had suicidal thoughts before that. It was something I hadn't dealt with. I was born into poverty. All through my adolescence, I knew people who committed suicide. It was something that was always there. Now, her father had been sent to Indian boarding school when he was four years old, and there had been significant alcohol abuse in her family. She'd also been sexually assaulted. 
which is something that is 33% more likely to happen to Native women than non-Native women. And in 85% of those cases, the assailants are non-Native men. The U.S. Department of Justice states that one in three Native women will be raped in her lifetime. Eileen Janis, who is a volunteer with the Sioux Suicide Prevention Program, says, Our spirituality is not a religion where you say, An Our Father in the morning and a Hail Mary at night. Our spirituality is a way of life. The churches came and they taught the Bible, which wasn't the same as our spirituality. They taught our children that we're born with sin, and that's just not right. Our children are sacred beings. So Janice thinks that the attempt to change the way of life made them very dependent, both physically and spiritually, on outsiders and started to erode the sense of community within the tribe. All right, and so you lose those people to fall back on. You lose that safety net. Yes. That sense of community. So there's one woman named Yvonne Tiny DeCorey who works with the Sweetgrass Suicide Prevention Program. And she talks about visiting young men who had later taken their lives. And they'd say, find me a job, find me anything. I just want to be able to put something on the table for my children. I'm no longer a warrior anymore. She said, there's poverty everywhere, but you're talking about an unemployment rate here of 82% or higher. She said, one insightful 17-year-old once asked her, why do I have to be a product of historical trauma? That happened to my great-grandparents. Why me? Why do I have to live that? I'm trying to move on, he said. Yet I keep hearing about what was done to my family, and that leads to why I'm this way. Until the American Indian Religious Freedom Act passed in 1978, Native Americans were not allowed to practice their religions freely. There was stigma. There was legal prohibitions against some of the rituals. There were roadblocks. And when spirituality is integrated into, like, literally everything you do... Right, of course. That is who you are as a people. And that's anybody, not just Native Americans. Like, that's a huge part of your culture... Right, and it's like you express your religious beliefs like when you're working the land, when you're hunting, when you're, you know, like all of it is part of spiritual practice. Like there's something that goes with every aspect of life. It led to people feeling very disconnected from their ancestors and rifts between generations. Hopkins said, our spirituality is such a crucial part of who we are. It's part of our identity. When you embrace that, you embrace yourself. I think that is healing in and of itself. Ron Hutchcraft said, this is beyond anything we've seen. It's almost like serial suicides. It's not just a psychological issue. It's a spiritual battle with spiritual forces. So the idea that there are spiritual forces at work is not isolated to this reservation, obviously. People often see that we have a good self and a shadow self, for example, like Jung did. That there are always two forces, usually good and evil, opposing each other and trying to find balance and integration right and that duality is seen around the world and especially in native american traditions and religion and lore so many different native american tribes have tales of these twin gods and they can represent good and evil they can represent summer and winter they can represent day and night but one interesting version is in the kind of iroquois and algonquin traditions and that's of the good mind and bad mind. Also as the right-handed twin, the left-handed twin. And according to some stories, the twin gods created humankind together, explaining why people can have both good and evil natures. Good mind, bad mind. And so kind of throughout lore, they're always kind of fighting, mm -hmm. as you'd expect, and arguing. And at one point, 
they're arguing over kind of who has control over humankind. So the bad mind says, I'm the ruler of the earth because when I command, I speak but once and men obey. Another good mind says, but I've created the earth. It's mine. And the bad mind answers, I do acknowledge that you've created all, but I say men beings obey me and do not obey you. And the good mind says, yes, but the children at the least are mine for they have done no wrong. So answered the bad mind. Now I tell you, the children are mine for when I say, pick up a stick and smite your playfellows. They do. Ah, the children are mine. The good mind replies, I'll send my messengers once more to tell how I feel and that way I will claim my own. But the bad mind replies, Even so, it will not be long before they forget and transgress the laws. And this I will say one word, and they will do what I say. It is true that who speaks of me, though on the other side of the earth, will find me at his back. So eventually they battle, and the good mind wins and continues to live in the daylight, while the bad mind is sent to become a dweller of the night. I think that's almost universally relatable. I think that no matter Definitely. what upbringing you had or what you were exposed to as a child, you can see why the bad mind would say, I only have to say one word and people come running. It's easier. It's the path of least resistance. It is not as much of a challenge to do the wrong thing nine times out of ten. But related to this situation, it's like when you are constantly reminded of that side of our duality, of the left-handed side of the bad mind, of all of the wrong that can happen in this world and that can happen among people. It's hard to remember what the good mind says. So on the 13th of November, 2008, a 14-year-old girl named Jamie Jetty of the Dakota tribe hanged herself from a bunk bed in her family's home on the Spirit Lake Reservation in North Dakota. And weeks after the funeral, her mother, whose name is Cora Whiteman Tiger, returned to work and she found a flyer on her desk from a suicide prevention program inviting her to the wiping of tears ceremony in a sweat lodge for those who'd lost a loved one to suicide. Cora says, I was standing there at the ceremony with an open wound. Through the community ceremony, she received a message from her daughter of comfort and hope. She told me to let others know that suicide is not the way to go. It's really scary. She said the lost spirits of those who committed suicide wander around crying and that we should pray for them. And she's tried to raise awareness about this issue within the Native American community. She says that there is still a resistance to confronting the issue, but we have to talk about it. I'll keep fighting that spirit that took my baby until I can't fight anymore. That was my promise to the grandfathers in the lodge. So I think that presents sort of an interesting idea about the spirits that take us. They don't have to be otherworldly spirits. They don't have to be the watchers on the mountainside, the shadows under our bed. Or the boogeyman. A tall man in the woods. Sometimes the things that take us, sometimes they can be the darkness that we create ourselves. Maybe... It's our own shadow, cast by the tiny light we hold. And the hardest job we all have is to protect that light from the darkness. And that's not just a story. That's not just a story.